Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. It's February 23rd, 1984. Robert Hansen and his lawyers are in a meeting room at the DA's office in Anchorage, Alaska. The prosecutor on Hansen's case, Frank Rothschild, is down the corridor. He spoke with us in 2020. The Anchorage DA's office had a, a full floor of an office building in downtown Anchorage. It was, it was a big office. Lots of lawyers, lots of secretaries, paralegals, you name it. And for at least 10 minutes, anyone on the whole floor could hear him screaming at the top of his lungs at his lawyers. Hansen has already admitted to five murders, but the prosecution accuses him of many more. He was pissed because we'd called him, and he wasn't going to get away with what he was trying to get away with. He wanted to beat the man, and the man was not having any of it. This is Mind of a Monster, The Butcher Baker, and I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. Episode 6, Breaking the Unfortunate Bond. As I mentioned, Frank's down the hall from the argument unfolding in the private meeting room. But Hansen's defense attorneys, Fred Dewey and Joe Evans, are right in the thick of it. So Joe, you, Fred, and Robert Hansen are all talking in this room. What are you saying? No, no, not talking. I'm yelling. I'm yelling at him. I'm saying what I, I mean. I'm using the F word. I said, "What the fuck's going on?" I I, I have no idea what uh, you have told me that you were involved in uh, four now five murders. Are you telling me now that there are more than four or five? And I remember him saying yes. Oh my gosh! So up to this point, you really had no idea that there were other murders. No. And I said, "Well, I think we're finished here." Meaning. You've confessed uh, four or five. We're done for the day. It's time to leave. We need to take a break. We can come back later. Uh, and he said to me very emphatically, I don't want to do that. I want to take care of all of this today. I want to finish this today. And that's when I, I seem to recall saying, you know, right handwriting, 
I told him to shut the fuck up. He said no. Joe gets Hanson to sign a piece of paper saying that his attorney told him to stop talking and he refused. Joe will now hear about Hanson's other crimes at the same time as the prosecution. Prosecutor Frank Rothschild. So uh, it was maybe 15 minutes later, they came back down the hall, came into the room, he sat back down, he was calm, and he indicated he was willing to continue on talking about other cases. Are we on record? Let me make sure. Time now is 2.24 p.m. Right, Mr. Hansen will be charged right now with five murders, and we already stand charged with the, um, the rape and the rest of this stuff with this uh, uh, prostitute. We will not charge you with anything more that you tell us about here. If you don't tell us and we find them, we will. Now, we made it clear to him and to his lawyers, we're not going to charge you with any of these other cases. We're not going to sentence you to any of these, but we want the information because there were lots and lots of people calling into the troopers, asking whether their daughters were one of, one of Hanson's victims, trying to figure out whatever happened to their kid. We're at that point where we'd like to show you first item, which is a flight chart. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask you about those other asterisks. You, you understand at this point what, what it is that we're talking about, do you not? Mm-hmm. Presumably we can have a meeting of the minds right now. How many women, sir, have you killed in Alaska? I'm going to be very honest about this here. These marks represent something. And they do. On this flight map they're looking at, the one taken from Hansen's house, there are asterisks marking the gravesites of the five murders Hansen has already admitted. But there are also 16 more marks on the map. That's the old Palmer Highway. Barnhart's Mill Road. You go in a way, I don't know how far. There's a road that leads into a landfill. There's one big tree. Right in behind, and there's some little scrub uh, alder. There's one man right there. That's be uncharged number one. Okay. There's one laying right there as if he's talking about a piece of clothing. I asked Joe Evans what it was like hearing about these additional murders for the first time. I've had murderers confess to me what they did, but they've always had a, a an excuse or a plausible explanation for what took place. I've never had someone talk about multiple murders and then essentially have no explanation other than I wanted to have sex with them and they upset me and when I finished, I knew I had to get rid of them. Is it hard at that point to separate your feelings as a human, as a person, from your duty as his defense lawyer? Well, I'd, at that point, his uh, life outside of prison was over. And the more important thing for me was to try and help the families. Over the next several hours, Hansen admits to 10 more murders. Bob, you've given us at this point 16 girls. Are there any more on this, either, any of these maps? No. How did you feel at that point? What was it like to listen to that? I, I think part of the impact it had on me is I have um, two daughters at the time, and the thought of him doing what he did to these women 
I just, I, I could not imagine someone being so caught up in their own desires uh, to do this to, to someone. And these were not spur the moment uh, encounters. I mean, he had, in my opinion, actually stalked these people. He had singled out folks that uh, did not seem to have friends. He was looking for loners because when they went missing, folks wouldn't say, well, she's not, she didn't show up for work or whatever, or at least that was his theory. And the matter of fact way he described them uh, was, was chilling and disturbing. Prosecutor Frank Rothschild. I absolutely came away reading that transcript and going back in time and thinking to myself, I didn't believe a lot of his stuff. And knowing how he wants to win the game and portray it now in a way in the best light for him, yeah, I, I think he was bullshitting us throughout. And there are the facts and the, and the end result of these things and then the way he tried to make it seem. So let's go into this a bit further. You'll remember criminal profile Dr. Brent Turvey. We've both listened to these two days of interviews from beginning to end, and I want to pick out some of these important moments with him. Let's talk about Robert Hansen's confession. Anything that happens after the apprehension and incarceration, uh, you, just, you can't trust it, unless it leads directly to evidence. And some of it did, and some of it didn't. But anything the offender says, again, after the fact to explain what he did, that's a rationalization. And I'm not saying that I, I hate all women. I don't, but quite the contrary. Uh, if I guess in my own mind, what I classify as a good woman, not a prostitute, I do everything in my power, any way, shape, or form, to do anything for her, um, and to see that no harm ever came to her. But I guess prostitutes are one that I'm putting down as lower than myself. Like it was a game. They had to pitch the ball before I could before I could bat. You know, oh, I always give them money ahead of time. So that remained that if they accepted money they they were a prostitute. I see. Was that is that for <clears throat> your peace of mind or for uh, the police? That made sure they uh, weren't a good girl. If it was a prostitute, if they didn't ask me for money, I would let them live because then they wanted me for me. But if they ask me for money, then they are a bad girl. So we have no corroboration that that's true, right? <laughs> that's just him saying that to, to, to suggest that he is morally and culturally superior. That's him, that's him tone checking. Brent's right. What Hansen describes is the way some of the murders played out, but not all. He pulled a gun on 18-year-old Patty Roberts as she was restarting her car. He tried to abduct a real estate secretary. One of his victims, Joanna Messina, was neither a dancer nor a sex worker. And he asked Cherry's friend Susan Bradford out on a date, not the other way around. And when I talked to author Leland Hale about this, he agreed. In fact, he did do that. Right. He invited women. He said he was a photographer. That wasn't them saying, hey, would you take photographs of me for $300? That was not them saying that. He had to offer that. So, you know, he's a liar. And that's uh, that's what's so problematic about it. And there's another thing here. In topless clubs like that, it's the girl's job to go up to the guy and persuade him to take a lap dance or to buy a bottle of champagne. 
that's how they're going to make their money, right? So the dynamic there is for them to come to you, not to you to come to them. Brent agrees. That's not about being a good girl or bad girl. That's about him not liking them to break the fantasy that he has, that he's desirable. That's incel ideology. That's exactly what it reads like to me, too. So earlier in the series, when we talked about Hanson's childhood, we spoke about the danger of aha moments. And I feel like that applies here, too. We cannot search for a master plan here because Hanson's only logic is to serve his own interests. Maybe Glenn Flothy, sitting there in that room across the table from him, says it best. His voice here is read by an actor. I think he felt he wanted to take what he couldn't have when he was younger. And he wanted to take what he felt he had a right to, and that was women. There's one more elephant in the room regarding Robert Hansen's confession. If you look Hansen up on the internet, you're going to see multiple reports that he, quote, hunted women like prey. And you may be wondering, when are we going to get to that part? Well, we're here, but not in the way you think. Dr. Brent Turvey. So this idea of hunting the girls, what are your thoughts about this? One, he didn't confess to it. And two, there's no physical evidence that that happened. Yes, the bodies are put in different spaces. And he confessed to some of those, but some of those bodies weren't found. So that's the first part. The second part is we need to know that they actually ran. We need to examine their feet. We need to examine their clothes. We need to examine whether or not they were blindfolded. One of the girls was found with an ace bandage around her, uh, her head, and then her injury was to her back. Yeah, okay, maybe, maybe that's what happened. There are about a dozen other explanations for that behavior. Why choose that one? They choose that one because it's a better story to tell and it makes for a better monster. And when this case gets repeated, that is one of the only things that gets repeated. And by virtue of sensationalizing his crimes, it almost glamorizes them. The story becomes about that rather than what it's really about. It's also what society taught him. He was not held accountable for all the terrible things he was doing, all right? by anyone until it was way too late. When Glenn Flothy was interviewed, he said the same thing. Somewhere the ball was dropped. He was not an articulate craftsman of murder and deception. That was absolutely false. I think some of the lack of thorough investigation on the police part made him what he was. We allowed him to continue. We are as much at fault as he was in a way. Uh, and I think that we should bear some of that responsibility for the continuation over a 15-year period of murder. He just points out the fallacy of the system. Back in the room on that February day in 1984, the troopers have one further request of Hansen. Will you take us to a death? When? We leave, like, uh, tomorrow or Saturday with a helicopter and go right out to these spots once you've showed them to us? All right. Glenn Flothy asks Hansen to come with the troopers and mark gravesites so that when the spring thaw comes, they can dig up bodies and return them to their families. And that is how Hansen and the troopers spend the February weekend before his sentencing. Author Leland Hale spoke with Glenn Flothy about the experience. That was a remarkable scene as well. When Hansen got on the ground, he just took off like a goat. I mean, Hanson is just flying toward the, you know, the grave sites, and Flothy's like, I can't even keep up with him. He was very excited. He was very, there was almost a pride. Um, you guys don't know where these grave sites are. I do. The only person who can take you there is me. My God, that is awful. 
it was something he could show off his skill. Look at how skillful I am. Look how smart I am. Look at what a great mountain man I am. So it was, he was twisted. That was a twisted pride. Police officer Greg Baker spoke to Glenn's colleague, Lyle Haugsven, about the same thing. But I remember Haugsven telling me that when they were coming up to a, a site where he had buried one of the bodies, he was almost giddy. It was fun. It was exciting for him, and he was having a great time. And uh, Hogsman said he'd never seen anything like that. On Monday, the 27th of February, just four days after agreeing to Hansen's plea deal, the sentencing hearing begins. The courtroom was absolutely packed because anything that said State versus Hansen brought out all the journalists anyhow. Sitting there that day is Cindy Paulson, alongside family members of many of the murdered young women. It was Frank Rothschild's job to make a statement for the prosecution and a recommendation for sentencing. My goal at the sentencing was to explain as best I could to the population of Alaska, who this man was, what he had done, the extent of his crimes, how he, uh, he was found out, why it took so long to find out. Before you sits a monster, an extreme aberration of a human being, a man who has walked among us for 17 years, serving us donuts, Danish and hot coffee, all with a pleasant, pleasant smile. His family was a prop. Was a prop. He hid behind decency. I don't know how I delivered that, <laughs> quite frankly, because I was really caught up in the horror of this whole case. I'd lived with it for a good while. I'd lived with this man, and so, yeah. Felt an obligation to all of the women. Uh, that's why I, I wore a little red rose in my lapel. I didn't say what it was for, but it, it was to honor the women who, who never made it back. And that was one way of expressing my emotion. It turned out to be 461 years plus life without parole. That was the sentence that the state recommended for Mr. Hansen uh, that would ensure that he never saw the light of day again. Uh, Mr. Hansen was given the opportunity by the court to speak. He declined. And so then Judge Moody gave his comments and imposed that sentence, and that was the end of it. For Detective Maxine Farrell, it was the culmination of four years of dedication and investigation behind the scenes. How did you feel when you heard about a sentencing? Oh, I was glad. I mean, it, he couldn't come out ever. I mean, that was the, the main thing. This was a lifetime sentence. He wasn't gonna get out again to do this to anybody else, ever. I never did care about the glory of anything. It was just that I did the job and I did a good job. 
My mother always said to me, anything you do, you got to do it over 100%. And I felt I'd done that. Did things change for you at the Anchorage Police Department after that? No, they pushed it under the carpet. There was, it was never mentioned. It was never mentioned again. After that, I applied for no promotions at all. Why bother? Why bother? I was fed up with them. How would you like people to remember your part in the Robert Hansen case? It feels good now that people are saying, oh, you're the one, da 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 but nobody ever else really cared until you guys came along. You're the first guys that came along that wanted to talk to me. Maxine, you're our hero. I think you're, you're quite incredible. Thank you. Two months after Robert Hansen is sentenced, the grim work of digging up the bodies begins. A reporter there to follow the uncovering of remains said, quote, The troopers were quiet as they worked Wednesday, and despite their presence, it was a lonely place. From the end of April until the first frost of fall, troopers travel around the remote grave sites that Robert Hansen had pointed out to them in the snow months earlier. Just last Tuesday, troopers discovered two other bodies in the Kadik River area. Neither of the victims have yet been identified. Remember that Hansen didn't recall any of these women by name. They weren't worthy of that to him. So each body recovered represents an ongoing puzzle a search for a real person who has more to their story than that ending Robert Hansen gave them. We're just going to have to compare the x-rays and go through dentals, Sergeant Floth said. By later that year, the troopers have recovered the remains of 11 young women, and they've identified nine. And while we have newspaper reports, profiles, and countless interviews with Robert Hansen about his childhood, his upbringing and his life, the information about most of his victims remains sparse. I want to read out their names and tell you something about each of their stories, something not related to Robert Hansen. 23-year-old Sue Luna. She had a tiny daughter, just 18 months old. She was headstrong and confident. 31-year-old Paula Goulding was from Hawaii. Paula had been a secretary in Fairbanks and was completely new to the dancing scene. She was full of life and very outgoing. 24-year-old Sherry Morrow, who Susan described as shy and sweet. Her sister said Sherry could light up a room. Joanna Messina. She used to be a nurse, but had started traveling around Alaska after a relationship fell apart. Her loyal German shepherd never left her side and was never found after her death. 25-year-old Angela Federn came to Alaska in 1979. She had a young daughter named Christina. 21-year-old Tammy Peterson. Her middle name was Joy. She loved ballet, dance, and creative writing. 28-year-old Malai Larson was trying to get enough money to return to her native Thailand. 22-year-old Teresa Watson was from Sacramento, California. She was blind in one eye and had lost touch with her parents. And finally, 41-year-old Lisa Futrell. There's a picture of Lisa in one of the 1980s newspaper articles about missing dancers. It shows her with a small girl who looks just like her with brown hair and bright eyes. Detective Maxine Farrell remembers Lisa. So tell me about Lisa Futrell. She was so smart, you know. She was the one that when the girls came in, she was in charge of them. And she really took care of them. And I had a good rapport with her. She's the one that I got in touch with her parent, her mother. 
and told me she had a six-year-old daughter and she could not be missing. It had to be something happened. And I was hoping and praying it was not her. So I was really sick about that. Well, that's sad. You know, she'd been through so much all her life. Three further victims known to police were never found. An unidentified girl Hansen mentioned in his interview, he said, quote, This girl here is black, buried right in a creek bank. Roxanne Eastland, who was presumed a victim because of the date of her disappearance and the fact that she was a dancer, and Andrea Altieri, who was known as Fish to her friends and wore a custom-made necklace in the shape of a salmon. This necklace was found in Hansen's house, among his other mementos. There's one other name missing from the list, a young woman we do know more about, Delyn Fry. We spoke to her cousin Deborah in a previous episode about growing up in Baltimore. She was six years younger than me. But when she was there, my uncle would bring her to stay. So I took care of her. It was Delyn's mom, Jean, who reported her missing in 1983. But in 1985, a year after the troopers pulled the last body from the ground, she still has no news of her daughter. The words you are about to hear are Jean's, taken from later court documents and read by an actor. I thought she might still be alive. Throughout those years, I always hoped that she wasn't dead. I'm going to take you up the Knick again, the beautiful river that is the scene of so much devastation in this story. It's August of 1985, and a hunter takes his plane up the Knick, landing on a remote sandbar there. By now, you probably know how this story ends. I'm going to read from the police report taken on that day. The pilot stated, in essence, that on August 20th, he saw a pretty flower, and he could see that an animal had been digging at the base of it. There was a bone sticking out of the sand. This pilot calls the troopers, and as they unearth the remains, they find the body of a young woman. There's no identification, but her hair is held by a rubber band in a ponytail. She's wearing a peach blouse, and there's two silver rings on her hand. I have the handwritten police notes here. One silver ring, figure eight design. Rope-type pattern formed the eight. One turquoise stone in each loop of the eight. Silver ring appears non-commercially produced. Red-green rock or semi-precious stone mounted in the center. These are distinctive rings, so you'd think it'd be easy to identify to whom they belong. But nobody notifies Delyn Fry's mom that a body has been found, or sends her these rings for identification. And just called Anchorage Police Department. I would ask them if there was any news or if there was anything they could tell me, and they always said no. I told them she had a broken arm and it would never go straight again. A serious fracture in her right arm information that would identify a Jane Doe immediately. But this crucial piece of the puzzle that we can see in Delyn's missing person report, it doesn't get checked against the evidence. It is four agonizing years later, in 1989, that Jean manages to get through to a state trooper, a Wayne Selden, the first person to take her seriously. He said he had some missing persons reports. She could possibly be one of the Jane Doe's that were buried here, and he would do everything possible for me to learn the truth finally. He came over to see us. We had several discussions on my daughter and how things were done. He was certain one of the bodies was her. Wayne Selden mails Jean the two silver rings found on the Knick River body. 
They're wrapped in plastic and slipped inside a manila envelope. When they arrive, the police report states Jean, quote, stated she did not want to see the rings, asking her husband, Dylan's stepfather, to identify them instead. Jean's husband confirms the rings belonged to Dylan. When the body is exhumed in 1989, they find a fracture in the right arm bone. She was just a nobody up here to them, and she wasn't anybody. I really didn't suffer physically. It was just a mental loss of mind. In 1991, Jean sues the state on the grounds of, quote, intentional reckless infliction of emotional distress. Her legal team claims agents knew that Delin had been killed by Hansen, who had already been caught by police, and that Delin was probably a drug addict or a prostitute. She wasn't important enough. But Jean doesn't win her case. It's dismissed. And for Deborah, Delin's first cousin, the wait to find out what happened was even longer. I was talking to some of my relatives, and this is, what, in 2004? And I was asking if anybody had seen Delin, but I didn't hear anything. What I did is I went into one of those services, a people-finding service. I thought, well, I'm going to pay for it and see if I can find her. And they brought up, like, articles articles and Delin and and they had a picture of her that one picture with her blonde hair you saw articles about how she was murdered yes I just was in shock I couldn't believe it I just couldn't believe it I said this is not real Deborah I struggle the most with all this entire story my my biggest struggle is the fear that those girls experienced I can't fathom he treated those animals that he hunted better she was a child how do you want Delyn to be remembered most? Jeez, that's emotional. I want her to be remembered as a beautiful young woman that lost her way, and we weren't there to find her. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. 
Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for your year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like, are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover? And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been doing your math right, you'll realize that there are two victims we haven't talked about yet. Two young women who remain unidentified, and it's their stories that take us right up to the present day. The first was called Horseshoe Harriet because she was found near Horseshoe Lake, 25 miles from Anchorage in 1984. At the time, her remains were skeletal. She was estimated to be between 18 and 25 years old, and that's all anyone knew about her for over 30 years. But in 2017, state trooper Randy McFerrin came out of retirement to join the cold case investigation team. Is it cold in Alaska right now? It's like in the 20s. It's pretty nice. We're finally getting some sunshine, and we've gotten a lot of snow this winter. Randy has a kind face. He's thoughtful and measured. He officially retired again in 2022 and now lives outside of Anchorage. When we talk, there's still six feet of snow outside his window. Where do you even start with a case like Hansen's? Because the case never went to trial, it didn't get put together like it normally would have. Essentially, the the case report was in a couple banker's boxes when I found it. And then from there, I started, you know, analyzing the cases that had potential DNA evidence or uh, DNA analysis. I think we're all pretty familiar with the kind of DNA where you take a swab from someone's mouth and you can link that to a direct match. That's called an STR profile. But in 2018, a different kind of DNA profiling was used to find the Golden State Killer. He was found using something called genetic genealogy. I'm, I'm not a DNA scientist, so I don't understand all of it, how it works. But the way it was explained to me is... Uh, An STR is your genetic uh, fingerprint. It's what makes you, you, and only you. Genetic genealogy uses a different type of profile called a SNP, an SNP. A SNP profile is kind of like your genetic blueprint. It's all the DNA that you inherit from your ancestors that makes you. So if we can find your second cousin on your mother's side, and your first cousin on your dad's side and start building a family tree between these two individuals, we can potentially figure out who your grandma grandpas were, your mom and dad were, your siblings, and then eventually you. And it's been a real game changer in 
cold case investigations. So tell me about when you took on the case of Horseshoe Harriet. What did you know about her? Very little. We ended up having to uh, exhume Horseshoe Harriet's body to get uh, DNA samples from her bones. Uh, they were sent off to uh, laboratories to extract DNA from them. And then eventually we got a, a good DNA sample that was processed and uploaded into GEDmatch and F Family Tree DNA. GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA are two public DNA databases. So once the profile of Horseshoe Harriet is in the database, it will pick up anyone in her family, however far removed. From there, the case team builds a family tree, circling closer and closer to who this young woman could be. Once, you know, we got her family tree put together, as we just started doing regular legwork, investigative work, and we eventually located a close family member living out of state. Wow, what was it like to make that kind of phone call after so many years? The family members we talked to, they were obviously very shocked, and in some cases they initially were in a bit of denial. You know how it is, people hope against hope that they're still alive. This relative agreed to provide a DNA sample. Sure enough, it, uh, it's her. We've identified Robin Pelkey. Robin Pelkey, a 19-year-old with family in Alaska. The picture we have here shows her smiling with beautiful, wavy auburn hair. She looks so healthy and happy in this photo. You know, it's it's very tragic loss. I mean, she was a, only like 19 and had her whole life ahead of her. We'll never know what her potential was because it was taken. Her life was taken at such a young age. Could you tell me a little bit about Robin's story? From what I've learned, um, she grew up here um, in the Anchorage area. She was like 13 or 14. She started having some, uh, you know, teenage behavioral issues, stuff like that. And things just kind of going downhill from there. Um, apparently she got it, you know, started having some drug abuse issues, started living on the street, uh, started resorting to prostitution to support herself, and uh, eventually she crossed paths with with Robert Hansen. You know, we, we talk about these victims like they're grown-ups. These are children. A lot of these victims were teenagers. It must be really difficult to investigate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's tough. So here we are. You've now identified Robin. What happens next? Well, um, the, uh, our, the public safety commissioner um, uh, made the decision that the department would purchase a headstone for her. And then last, uh, last summer, the, the stone was installed. And uh, so at least now, you know, she has, she has a name. On a rainy day in August 2022, in front of a small crowd of state troopers, Robin's new gravestone was installed. Instead of being called Horseshoe Harriet or Jane Doe, her headstone now reads, Robin Louise Pelkey, you were never forgotten. What had given Robin her name back mean to you? Like, how, how did you feel that day? You know, just it, the culmination of a lot of work um, to put this final closure. And, you know, of course, it was a team effort. It wasn't just me. Actually, I have a picture of it here. Here it is, but I don't know if you can see that. Randy holds up a picture on his phone. It shows him in the graveyard in Anchorage next to a small stone with some flowers laid by it. 
A woman with long, dark hair stands beside him. The woman standing next to me is, is uh, Patty Busby. She's a criminal analyst, and she's also a genealogist. And between the two of us, we worked this case. And, you know, Patty, she's hard at work on a clute nanny. I, I, I just hope she solves it. Eklutna Annie, the last unidentified victim of Hansen. The woman whose remains were uncovered by Detective Maxine Farrell next to power lines in 1980. It's time to bring our story back to where we began. And to do that, we need to talk to Randy's colleague, Patty Busby. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? All right. Thank you. Patty answers my call from a meeting room in the Alaska State Trooper office. She has dark hair pulled back into a ponytail in a gentle, sincere manner. I'm a criminal intelligence analyst. I assist with cold cases that involved uh, genetic genealogy. Tell me what you love about your work and why it's so important to you. Ultimately, it's about helping the victims and their families. Um, and every victim has a story. And so I get to use genetic genealogy to help tell their story. And that is so, it's such a powerful thing. So here you guys are able to give Horseshoe Harriet back her proper name. What did it mean to you personally to give Robin back her name? Gosh, I could get kind of emotional. Um, whenever I make um, an identification, it's twofold. It's, it's a very, oh my God, I did it. And on the other hand, it's like, wow, this is very, very sad. Now I can, I can see who I think that person is, you know, what they look like, where did they go to school, what what was their life about. But the Hansen file isn't fully closed, right? The Klutna Annie, you guys are still trying to find out who she is. Everybody has that case that is, is haunting them, that they have to solve this case. I'll get there because I can't take no for an answer. It, it's not an option to to not identify her. It's just not. We just need one. We just need one match. <laughs> just one person to upload. Back in 2021, Patty uploaded Eklutna Annie's DNA SNP profile into GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. But she doesn't have close enough matches to build a good family tree yet. She needs more people to make their profiles public so that she can get a match. And the other DNA services that are advertised everywhere, well, they're private. Patty can't check Eklutna Annie's DNA against them. I can't give specifics about um, where I'm at with the case, but I can tell you that her matches are somewhat low. Every day it's a new possibility of a fresh chance to get that upload. It is, and it's hard not to check your matches every day. <laughs> but, but, you know, you can't. You got, you know, it, it wouldn't make you crazy, yeah. So maybe once, once a week or so. And I just need one person <laughs> to upload with a high match. How can people help solve cases like these? That's a good question. If they've taken a DNA test, they can upload to GEDmatch, um, G-E-D-M-A-T-C-H, and also to Family Tree DNA. Um, and they can just create a username, create a profile, um, and upload. What will it mean to you to find her identity and finally give a Clutena Annie a name? I've been working on her family tree for so long, and um, it's going to be very heartbreaking and also um, rewarding as well. Does it feel like she'll be a person 
once again, not just a victim. Because right now, this all that we talk about regarding that person is the circumstances of her death, when she had a whole life before that, right? Yeah, she, she had a life. She went to school. She's somebody's daughter, um, possibly somebody's mother. Um, we, we don't know anything about her at this point. Um, and to be able to break that unfortunate bond with Robert Hansen. She is her own person without the association with Robert Hansen. I'm really hoping she'll have that one day. Thank you, Patty. Thank you. I can't help thinking of Patty and Randy and their work 43 years after all of this went down. To me, they're given the final middle finger to Robert C. Hansen. He didn't see these women as people, and Patty is still fighting every day to bring back their full stories, their humanity. So where do we go from here? Well, a few weeks ago, a good three quarters of the way through making this series, our assistant producer managed to track down the one person upon which this entire case hinged, the young, straight-talking 17-year-old whose testimony put Hansen behind bars. When we was driving, I observed everything, because this motherfucker wasn't getting away with it. In 40 years, Cindy Paulson has never spoken in public about this case, not even for a newspaper interview. But that's about to change. Please double check to make sure that your seatbelts are securely fastened. I'm nervous. On our next episode of Mind of a Monster, The Butcher Baker, I'm going on a journey to meet her. Hi, can I give you a hug? <laughs> and hear her side of this story from beginning. He sat and sat in the chair and he had me cuff and that chair upside down so fast it made my head spin. Boom. To end. I hope to God you never, ever, ever have to feel that way. Mind of a Monster, The Butcher Baker is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Jess Leindevere. Editor, Millie Tapner. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our production manager is Alexandra Kelly. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. Our archive producer is Katia Lohm. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Glenn Flothy voiceover by Mike Bodie. Arrow Media's series producer is Gabrielle Nash. And executive producer is Stuart Pender. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow this series wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you could take a minute to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Nickelodeon was kid everything. But that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators worked at Nickelodeon. It made me wonder who was being hurt. Quiet on set. An ID true crime event. Sunday, March 17th at 9 on ID and stream on Max.